Thank you, Bryony, and thank you for inviting me. Um, just wait for the images to come up. So what I'll do is I'll first say a few things about Bauhaus Imaginista uh, before going on to talk about the aspect of our project which relates to Annie Albers. So Bauhaus Imaginista is a three-year research project that was commissioned by the Bauhaus Cooperation, the House of World Cultures, and the Goethe Institute to mark, mark the centenary of the Bauhaus this year. And our brief um, was not to look at the Bauhaus uh, during the time that it was active as a school, uh, between 1919 and 1933, <clears throat> but to instead look at the legacy of the Bauhaus, its, trans its transnational legacy post-1933. Um, I have to say, neither, of, neither myself nor Marion van Osten are Bauhaus scholars. We are curators and artists. Um, and we were asked to really make a kind of architecture for this large-scale project, and we've worked extensively with researchers from different parts of the world to do that. Um, so, nevertheless, uh, during the period that the Bauhaus was active, it was a, already a very international project, uh, with artists and uh, students and teachers coming from different parts of the world, and the Bauhaus incorporating what we would now call many transcultural elements into the curriculum. But in 1933, as you know, it was closed down by the National Socialists, and uh, many Bauhausers fled Germany to different parts of the world. And so our project really follows this transmission of the Bauhaus, um, and we focus in our project on Brazil, China, Japan, Morocco, Nigeria, Russia, um, the United States, and also the United Kingdom in a very, in a very small respect. And we saw in, through our research that... Um, the, the Bauhaus was in contact with other modernisms, with other schools, and that its ideas were sometimes quite radically transformed uh, through contact with different local conditions, uh, through long, contact with non-aligned movements, with development projects, with processes of decolonization, and also with a burgeoning um, artistic and popular culture in the, in the post-war period. So how we've organized Bauhaus Imaginista is to start with four uh, focal objects, or Gegenstände, um, and we use these objects as a way to develop theoretical, uh, sorry, conceptual and uh, thematic chapters. So the first Gegenstände, unsurprisingly, is, is the manifesto from 1919, and we use this to make a, a research on pedagogy, the second is a drawing by Paul Clay from 1927, which is a small drawing of a car North African carpet. And from this, we look at um, questions of appropriation and learning from. And the third is called Moving Away, um, and it's based on a collage by Marcel Breuer um, called Ein Bauhaus Film. And from this, we look at the evolution of design as it moves into different cultures and geographies. And then the final chapter is called Still Undead. And this departs from a work by uh, Kurt Schwertfeger called um, Reflektorischer Lichtspiel. And from this, we look at experimental practices in light and sound. And the outcome of our project has been a whole series of exhibitions and discursive events in different parts of the world. So we had a uh, conference in Rabat, an uh, exhibition in Hangzhou, a seminar in New York, which I'll talk about today, 
um, exhibition in Kyoto, Moscow, Sao Paulo, and a uh, conference in Lagos, and a conference in Delhi, and an exhibition in Delhi. And if you go to the Bauhaus Imaginista website, you can see all of the details of the project, including quite a lot of research material um, contained there. So going to the next slide, do I just, yeah, just arrow, sure. Okay, so the symposium in New York was called Learning From, and it explored the question of appropriation of cultural artifacts and their reinscription in a new context. And specifically, it looked at questions of appropriation and learning from in the work of Bauhaus emigres and their students in the United States. And what we tried to do was think about these histories, but also in relation to uh, contemporary debates around questions of restitution. Prior to the symposium, we organized a study day, a three-day study day. And um, we have, in fact, one of the participants here today, Alyssa Author. And we went to visit a series of um, museum archives, and um, we looked at artists' works. And this is our group. It's, uh, we're in the lift at the Metropolitan Museum. And we couldn't show images, actually, from the archive. That wasn't allowed. So this is, this is a, an image from the lift. <laughs> but it was a mixed group, and it was really interesting. We had people who were specialists in Annie Alba, so Brenda spoke about samples from the 1950s at the Met. Um, we had artists and activists. We had curators. And we had our researchers who were working on this particular subject matter. And I think part of our, part of our thinking was not to make a critique of the Bauhaus or, or Annie Albers in terms of this appropriation, because obviously, at that time, the whole question of um, the whole kind of ethical debate around appropriation obviously hadn't developed, even though it did exist in the early 20th century. Um, but instead, we wanted to, in a way, think about some of the gaps in those histories. And one of the things when we were researching this chapter on cultural appropriation that we discovered, and maybe it's something that is, 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 is known, is that the Bauhaus, right from the beginning, from 1919, when they opened the library in Weimar, they had many books on so-called world art, which were popular in Germany at that time. So they had, um, <clears throat> they had some books which were called, had titles such as The Cultures of the Whole World, Images of the Cultures of the Whole World. They had other books which were specifically on um, subjects like African sculpture, uh, Andean textiles, um, African wood carving, and these were sort of fed into the, the curriculum. And I think, as you, as, as you know, the, the, the Andean textiles were particularly important for the weaving workshop. And this is one of those books. <clears throat> so in the aftermath of the closure of the Bauhaus, um, Bauhaus emigres to the United States include weavers, the weavers Annie Albers, Marley Ehrman, Trude german Prey, and Dolores Bittleman. And as is <coughs> well known, Annie Albers and Joseph Albers were able to now pursue a much more uh, direct contact with pre-Columbian culture than they had been able to do in Germany through books and ethnographic museum collections. And as Alyssa author pointed out in her presentation, um, in our symposium, 
there was already a very well-established discussion and interest in pre-Columbian artifacts. And she pointed to, in particular, the work of the American Museum of Natural History and the way that from 1915 onwards, as part of its project to um, reform design, they'd opened up their collection to the public through um, study days, exhibitions, lectures, and publications. And so, in a way, our visit to the uh, Junius Bird collection at the uh, museum was, in a way, part of that trajectory. And this is, um, this is an image of an Inca tunic in a work by Annie Albers and Virginia Gardner-Troy, who was also participating in our symposium, made this connection, this kind of formal connection between the checkerboard pattern of the tunic and the work by Albers. So in the book on weaving by Annie Albers, <laughs> there's an image of a work by Lynn Tawney called Dark River, and this, which is from 1961, and this work denotes the connection between the Bauhaus emigre weavers and a subsequent generation of fiber artists who emerged strongly in the 1960s in order to challenge preconceptions around textiles as an art form. And what's interesting is that the, the fiber artists had uh, privileged access to the Bauhaus legacy, partly through uh, museum collections, so the museum collection um, of MoMA, but also the Bush Reisinger Museum, an enormous collection of Bauhaus textiles. But more importantly than that, many of them were trained directly with Bauhaus weavers. And in their book from 1971, um, Constantine, um, Constance, sorry, let me just find the, the, the reference here. Constantine, uh, Mildred Constantine and Jack Lena Larson point out the importance of this connection between the Bauhaus weaving workshop and the, the fiber art movement. And what they say is that even though um, in the Bauhaus there was this eventually there was this emphasis on utility in textiles, but the Bauhauslers, to quote them, glorified material and structure. And this was something which the, was central to the fiber arts. And they also point to the fact that um, in the weaving workshop there was a very well-developed philosophy of teaching which involved experimentation, um, creativity, but also this... Um, utilitarian end, but more important than that was the um, fact that the Bauhaus weavers were starting to write about textiles, and this is something which was unique. Um, Seth Sieglaub, in his texts on uh, his own book collection, book collection of books on textiles, says that prior to the 20th century, there was really very little or almost no discourse on textiles. These books were uh, specifically um, instruction manuals. So the fact that the uh, Bauhaus weavers were starting to try and theorize textiles was, was a very important move in terms of giving it a, a sense of importance. And of course this was central for uh, Constantine and Larson who make this very strong argument for textiles as a medium which is of equal value to uh, painting and sculpture. And they point to the Bauhaus again and they say, you know, they quote Gropius and they say, you know, the equality of art and craft theoretically means that weaving can command the same position as these other more established uh, media. And I think what's interesting here is that Andean weaving played its part. So 
in a reading by Annie Elbers and others, they understood that weaving in Inca culture was something highly privileged because it was used in ceremonial um, occasions, it was used in mummy wrappings, it was used um, also as a form of language. This is something that Annie Elbers talks about. Um, in, in, in a culture where there's no written language, textiles has a semantic function. And the uh, fiber artists like Lynn Ortoni also made their journeys to Latin America. So Lynn Ortoni and also Sheila Hicks, who was a student of Joseph Elbers, traveled to Latin America. Hicks took her camera and made many photographs, which became an important uh, resource for her in terms of developing a new kind of textiles for the mid-20th century. And uh, Tawny collected many things, shells, beads. Um, she made sketchbooks and took photographs. And these, some of these materials we saw when we visited the Lino Tawny Foundation in New York with Catherine Mangan. And one of the things that we saw in the Tawny Foundation was this book by Ralda Harcourt, Textiles of Ancient Peru and Their Techniques, which is a, a must-have, a must-read for artists of that generation interested in Andean textiles. And one of the other participants in our symposium was a, a weaver called Elvira Espeo, and she writes in her book um, on Andean textiles how, how important these documents were how, they, how important they were in terms of disseminating very detailed information about the, the, the techniques of how to construct fabric in, in, in Peruvian culture. But she also says that the problem with them is that they were written principally, I mean, going back to the 19th century, they were written principally in, in English and French. And so the, the, the sort of terminology, the textile terminology that was used came from those cultures. And so it overlooked the very specific terminology and ethos of uh, contemporary uh, Andean weaving cultures who continue these traditions. And in our symposium, this is Alvira, talking about some of those traditions and some of those techniques and some of the terms which were important for her community. And she also made a distinction in her book, um, which is called The Andean Science of Weaving, between two different understandings of textiles. One is a museological approach which looks at questions of custodianship, questions of historical context, maybe questions of form. Um, and the other is to see, as Tim Ingold has described them, textiles as things entangled in social practices. And Elvira also says that in Andean terminology, textiles are considered to be corporeal, literally living, three-dimensional beings which have the capacity to animate relations between people. And this is something that was demonstrated almost immediately after her talk by a performance uh, from Cecilia Vicuna in which she connected the audience with these long strands of uh, fibre. And as she made this performance, connecting the audience, creating this touch between people and, and the work of art, she recounted these histories of colonialism and extraction in Latin America. Um, and of course, Vicuna's work, I think many of you know her work. She's been working with textiles going back to the 1960s, and her practice is steeped in indigenous handicraft traditions from Chile, where, where she comes from. Um, 
And she often also, like Annie Elbers, refers to the communicative function of textiles. So she would sometimes place uh, textiles into a public context as a provocation and as a way of um, proposing new forms of association and contact. Um, and she was very interested in this uh, ancient object called the kripu, which is a, a, a thread with threads coming off it with knots tied in the hanging threads, which has a semantic function. Talking about questions of restitution, we also invited Candice Hopkins to come and make a performance lecture. And she spoke about a quite strange um, example of this from the United States, um, where the city of Seattle in 1911 decided to adapt, adopt the um, potlatch ceremony from Native American Indians as a form of um, marketing of the city. So lots of iconography was used from these potlatch ceremonies, which are um, part of Native American culture. But the irony was that at this very time, under assimilation policies, potlatch ceremonies had been banned um, and made illegal and were broken up by the authorities. And many of the objects which were brought to those ceremonies were confiscated and found their way into uh, institutional collections and private collections. And finally, I just want to um, recount a conversation I had with uh, Sebastian Deline, who's an artist and indigenous scholar uh, from Canada. And as we left the um, archive in the Natural History Museum, we walked through the hall of the Eastern Woodland Indians. And he was pointing out objects and explaining them to me in more detail and also saying, okay, this one is slightly incorrectly in installed or the captioning isn't quite right. But what was more disturbing for him was the fact that the galleries were adjacent to presentation of uh, primates. And he mentions that uh, in a text that he subsequently wrote for us that the occasion of the redevelopment of these galleries would be an opportunity to uh, tell these histories from an indigenous perspective. And this is the, the display in question. Uh, finally, in our um, catalogue for Bauhaus Imaginista, the art historian Suzanne Lieb has sort of rounded up or given her appraisal of this question of appropriation at the Bauhaus. And she describes it as something which is ambivalent. So on the one hand, it prompted an interest in arts and artifacts from other societies. Um, but it did so using an approach um, that privileged form over materiality, objectness over social context, and aesthetics over historicity. And as she points out, this kind of framing, this kind of framing has been disrupted by decolonization movements and the de demands for restitution. And I think what was important for us in our symposium was that any contemporary account of these histories would bring those uh, questions, uh, make those questions present in the discussion. Thank you.